I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by Sitio Landscape Architecture and NCARP. You'll hear more about them later on in the show. There's all these decisions that have already been made. That, like technology, there's a famous like, line, like technology is a series of decisions that have already been made. Like you've got your Mac. That's because the Mac's designed, right? You have to deal with it. You can go and try and build a whole new company, but it's too hard. So how do we as people who naturally know how to make decisions and create our environments together do that in, in the face of these massive technical systems that we have built? These, these bureaucracies and their, the standards and the supply chains and the contracts, like it's really hard. And it's sad because the output is, generally a lower quality of built environment. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Thank you for coming back. In this episode, we're going to talk about co-design, discussing the belief that cities' digital transformations should be built on a foundation of ensuring that ideas are rooted in the interests of the people that live there. In this conversation, we define what co-design is, get a bit philosophical, and explore technology that may facilitate the process of aggregating the ideas of community members. I'm joined by Michelle as we have a fascinating conversation with Rob Asher, CEO of Giraffe, 
an early stage real estate development platform that accelerates finding, assessing, and developing sites. Supported by real-time data from designs and detailed customization opportunities, Giraffe empowers users with connectivity to quickly scale developments with confidence. So, Michelle, uh, we're talking today about something called co-design. Have you ever heard of co-design? I can't say that I have. Okay. So it's sort of a high-level, rough definition of co-design. It's basically the idea of community members being treated as equal collaborators and contributing to the design process. But we do have uh, someone who's involved in sort of shepherding the concept of co-design through their particular um, avenue. Uh, He is the CEO of Giraffe. Please help me welcome Rob Asher. (laughs) Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Yeah. Uh, So I'm excited to dig into this. This is actually going to dovetail nicely into a previous conversation that we had. Um, A portion of it, uh, they talked about a project that was being developed And uh, they talked about how they actually did uh, crowdfunding of local community members and to bring them into the project and have sort of a a stake in in the development of this project. It's not to the level of contributing design input per se, but they did have some leverage because they were essential stakeholders in this project. So I think this will kind of dovetailed nicely into what we're going to talk about today. But before we jump fully into it, um, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, anything that I may have missed as far as giraffe goes? Yeah, I think um, I think the key thing to know about giraffe from me is that I was a practicing architect for five or six years. And I was mainly working at early stage feasibility and competition. So design excellence competitions are I'm here in Sydney in Australia, and one of the mechanisms with which policymakers drive uh, excellent design is they give developers a floor space bonus if they conduct an independent design excellence competition. So it means you're competing, you know, three architecture firms head to head, an independent jury of assessors that are, you know, luminary architects, um, you know, town planners, etc., and they select the best design on its merits, and then the developer can go and build it. Uh, which is a great training ground to, you know, see that intersection between policy and commerce and design uh, mm-hmm. in an extremely high, high, you know, pressure cooker environment. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so that's my bat. And basically what, what Giraffe came out of was, was doing that a lot and looking at the processes that, that everyone always does, the technological processes, and then building a product that I wished I had as that design architect. And, you know, to the topic at hand, I see architecture really, and, and I know this, you know, just to preface this, architecture in Australia and the UK and the US, they're, they're the same profession. They've got slightly different flavors and different emphases. So this is, this is obviously colored from my mm-hmm. Southern hemisphere, Australian yeah. view. Uh, architecture is inherently co-design-ish in the sense mm-hmm. you are always mediating between engineers, policymakers, clients, tenants, 
owners, capital partners, and you're trying to find a solution that every single stakeholder can understand and appreciate the reason you got to where it was and understand that although they may have made some compromises and may not be exactly what they want, they feel like they've been heard and their their needs have been responded to. So it's quite natural then to go the next step and say, this development, right, it's going to be a big tower, say 60 stories in this city. It's going to affect everyone for like 200 years. It's going to shadow yeah. the parks. And so how do we get their voices in, you know, subject to the constraints? So I think uh, co-design is not new in a way, right? It's, 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 part, it's very close to what architects do already as mm-hmm. stakeholder managers. So Giraffe is built to facilitate those kind of conversations. For much of human history, people have lived in small-scale groups, working together on a common course of action to achieve collective goals. If the group found it impossible to agree, it would disband to form new groups or remove uncooperative individuals. While easy in small groups, coming to a consensus became increasingly difficult as populations grew. The only way to agree on a common course of action was to create a network of decision-making, a hierarchical system, but not a social hierarchy. In this system, a coordinator at the center of the network can easily collaborate and enact decisions with a group of 10 or so. Those 10 individuals can then do the same with 10 more individuals each, and so on, gathering the wishes of the larger group to obtain consensus or a common course of action. During the Holocene era, almost 12,000 years ago, rapid proliferation and growth of the human species worldwide brought about increased conflict as misaligned human societies came into frequent contact and disagreement with each other. Hierarchical societies appeared, spread, and then evolved into larger scale societies. These societies evolved to become extremely unequal and ultimately corroded society-wide cooperation. This social hierarchy structure was then established based on local administrative control and the distribution of land. A landowner distributed land with the promise of military and legal protection in return for a payment of some kind from the person who received it. This hierarchical social structure was also reflected in the development of our cities. In the early 20th century, urban planning had more to do with top-down visions, but a pioneering town planner, Patrick Geddes, advocated that planning considered the needs and ideas of local people. In the following years, this belief would grow and evolve. In the 1930s, the field of public opinion formalized as an academic and professional discipline, and public opinion polls became more common as companies and governments began to understand the value of listening to people. This was expanded in a remarkable way in the early 1940s when planners in London began to think about post-war reconstruction. They viewed this moment as an opportunity to engage the public and use town planning as a tool for recovery and improving lives. Groups of social science researchers were hired by the government to survey the public with questions like, Do you know what town planning is? What do you think should be done about post-war housing? Do you think it is necessary to be near schools, bus routes, big shops, stations? 
Unfortunately, execution on the feedback fell flat, as actual influence remained limited by the hierarchical structure. This inaction discouraged the public, and active efforts to listen and engage them declined. But by the 1960s, the general public in Europe and the U.S. had grown critical on several fronts. Following periods of poor living conditions, labor and wage disputes, inequality and civil rights abuses, to name a few, the public began to demand that their voices be heard, and public participation was renewed. The enthusiasm spread widely, encouraging new approaches to effectively learn and act on the will of the people. A formal approach known as cooperative design, or also referred to as co-design or participatory design, originated in Scandinavia in the 1970s and 80s as a commitment to democratically empower workers and foster democracy in the workplace. It aimed to form partnerships with labor unions that would allow workers to determine the shape and scope of new technologies introduced into the workplace, rather than being forced to accept new systems, particularly those that put people out of work. There were three main criteria for the approach. One, quality of life for workers. It was meant to improve workers' quality of life, both in terms of control over their own work organization, tools, and processes, and their ability to perform their given task with ease. Two, collaborative development. Researchers and designers were to find mechanisms to ensure that data collection and analysis would be done in conjunction with participants, not just on their behalf. Three, iterative process. Informal knowledge and practices are by their nature difficult to see and understand. As each change in a prototype tends to unearth other tacit practices and knowledge, it is important to have a series of opportunities to sustain continuous worker engagement throughout the process of design and research. In opposition to the concept, some see limitations in this methodology. Since co-design aims to gain consensus of the group, some argue that it does not lend itself to the radical change or innovation that emerges from a singular or streamlined decision-making process. In fact, co-design designers have been cautioned to think of their work as evolution, not revolution. Another perceived limitation is that some strains of the approach tend to focus too narrowly, assuming that focusing on a specific issue will result in empowering changes to the overall. Lastly, co-design research takes an enormous amount of time, resources, and institutional commitment to pull off. Despite these opposing views, there has been a noticeable shift in thinking in society. Potentially accelerated by the perceived effectiveness of tech industry culture, society is increasingly becoming more open source, more in line with a co-design approach, and pushing for more people to have a seat at the table. Notable evidence is represented in recent movements and support for representation. In published research quantifying how diverse leadership results in better decision-making and higher returns for companies. Varied opinions and experiences prove to provide the breadth of knowledge required to make the best decisions for a group. While we still find the built environment molded by the few, 
the public's voice is increasingly being heard as more and more tools make organizing easier. These advancements in technology are democratizing all facets of our life. It appears that it may also unlock the building industry to re-establish society-wide cooperation for the betterment of our communities. Now before we get back to our conversation, we're going to share a little bit more about our sponsors. All right, for our California listeners, this is for you. CTO Landscape Architecture in Anaheim, California is a young, ambitious, fast-growing firm providing landscape architecture planning and design services to the AEC industry, real estate developers, and public agencies alike. CTO's expertise with designing California native landscapes and water efficiency calculations makes permitting a smooth, painless process. The CTO team is continuously revising and improving workflows to better meet project milestones while providing the flexibility to work within client schedules. Their work from anywhere, anytime office schedule allows for agility when it comes to delivering client work and balancing personal time and life events. Learn more at ctola.com. That's S-I-T-I-O-L-A.com. Or you can call or text to 657-217-6169 to see how Sitio can help with your latest development project. Now I touched on a few stakeholders that Sitio helps, but to further that point, they don't rely on a single project type or limit their focus. They work on diverse project types including infill developments, multifamily affordable housing, public works, private residential and commercial properties, healthcare, and outdoor entertainment spaces. Whatever your project is, I'm sure if you reach out to CTO, they can jump in to help. Have you heard of NCARB? It's the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, and they want to hear from you. Yes, you. NCARB's analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Participate in this industry-wide survey to share your experiences and insights from working in the AEC industry. Your feedback will help guide changes to what being a licensed architect looks like and impact how architects collaborate with other professionals in the future. Again, whether you're an architect or work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. So make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. That's N-C-A-R-B dot org slash AOP. And now let's get back to the conversation. So how how is Giraffe um, approaching this this problem? You know the story that, that Peter Drucker tells about the train, the, the train industry, and they thought they were in trains, but they were actually in transportation. And as soon as aeroplanes came out, people had no attachment to trains. They just wanted to get from, from Washington to New York. And if an aeroplane got them there in a half the time, I'll never sit, you know, sit in a train again. I'll just go straight to an aeroplane. Yeah. So actually understanding what you do is quite difficult. And I think this is the, the same for designers and even developers. And I think 
there's a sort of a schizophrenic nature to the architect, right? There's the artist, as in the visionary, you know, and this is like the Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, star architect kind of like lone <laughs> genius, like you know the Howard Rourke, I, I don't know the Ayn Rand kind of, you know, that guy. I haven't ever read it, but the the the, the guy that sets up the business, you know, that the, the yeah. Gulch, whatever Gulch yeah. he goes to, that guy. And then there's the bus driver where it's like, um, hey, architect, I don't care what you think. I need you to plan a building that looks kind of like this, but I'm not going to learn how to use Revit. You use Revit mm-hmm. and just give me what I want. Uh, I, I, you can choose the carpet color, whatever you need, but you're a functionary to, you're like a sort of a servant, like a, you know, and I think architects actually provide both those services together because the, the tooling is so complicated, like to open Revit or to, or to build a BIM model or to understand how to get a permit. It's so, it's so, it's, it's often mind numbingly boring, but it's very difficult. So hold those two things in, uh, in your heads. What I, what Giraffe is trying to do is that technical bit. So calculating the numbers, FAR, yields, the mechanical bits of architecture, the, the technical bits. We basically want to fully automate so that we, we, we're turning developers and we have developer clients right, who've never created a BIM model in their life, they can draw in giraffe and they get a BIM model, but it's a trick. You know, they don't think, we don't say, hey, you'll build a BIM model. That would scare them, right? They'd say, oh, no, I've got my architect to do that. But they just do some sketching in giraffe and it turns into a BIM model with all the benefits like area takeoffs and all the stuff that BIM's great at because we're automating it really elegantly, right? And so if we can automate that technical barrier, the, the thesis is or the idea is the participants who are kept out of design just by this technical gap, not because they lack imagination, not because they lack clarity on what they want, not because they lack vision, you know, just because they don't know how to describe it in SketchUp or Revit. And so, you know, they, they locked out. We automate that. We lower that gate and then they can jump in because I think the technical stuff will never go away. You will never get a building approved unless you know it's FAR and you know mm-hmm. it's impact on flood and it's power. You it just can't. Like we're in a modern society. You can't be building mud huts by hand and it just won't. So you need the technical, but if you automate it, let's, let's lower the barrier to entry, simplify it and come in. And then the tension for us is like, when do you oversimplify it? When does it turn from something like powerful, like Adobe Illustrator to something like clip art where you can like remember those? You know what I mean? Where it's, it's a fake yeah. empowerment. It's just, you can choose a bunch of templates. So we're trying to make it simple, but expressive for non-experts. Yeah. Is this uh, through a browser? Yeah, it's all. So it's a, it's a piece of browser-based SaaS. My vision is, is it feels like a computer game, almost like SimCity, where it's so approachable that people start understanding the systems. And rather than it's a game mechanism where you make points and, I don't know, you know, SimCity style, it's real life mechanisms around funding structures, but, but it's, it's gamified in the sense it's simplified and approachable so that people can sort of understand trade-offs. Because a lot of what co-design is trade-offs. You have five people in a room, Mm-hmm. they're not going to agree. There's no way. And so you're going to have to fight and there's going to be winners and losers. And luckily, there's not one big winner and one big loser, but everyone will win and lose on certain things and, and have to make trade-offs. And that's key. And and so then that's the second thing Giraffe does is because it's so easy, you work live. So you work in real time. So it's not like, hey, let's do a scheme for this park. And then someone says, oh, we should put a community center here. And then someone says, oh, well, that's going to block my light. And then the architect goes, okay, I'll do two studies and I'll come back to you, right, next week. And, and I'll bring the sun studies. And then the next week, here's option one. And then someone goes, oh, well, can we, here's sub-option 2A. And anyone who's ever worked in design will know at three weeks into the process, you've got like 55 options. Everyone's <laughs> yeah. confused. You're trying to, 
And it's so slow that the conversation, even if it's trying to be participatory, is not because people have forgotten what they said last week. You know, the minutes for the meeting were not perfectly, you know, and so... So what Giraffe does is you can stretch and pull in real time and say, okay, well, let's add a story. Boom. And then it does the solar analysis. So do you, you look, you've just, you, you've got your extra story. So your, your return on cost looks better, but you've yeah. obliterated sunlight to the park, which means the grass won't grow, which means, you know, and then you have a, a, an evidence-based discussion. So that technical stuff is happening, but a conversation is also happening. And so that's the utopia we're, we're trying to build. Does it yeah. make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it does. And it's it's actually, as you were talking, I was, my heart started beating fast because I was getting <laughs> nervous. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, that much power is almost dangerous in when you're trying to work through design process because you almost end up opening the Pandora's box to infinite options and infinite opinions because you can move so quickly. Mm. But at the same time, it is very powerful because you can speak to specific data and specific information because when we're in a meeting, you know, talking through sketches, um, it's the same thing, but now you have something to back it up. Correct. With. You have the data there. So, so your finance person can be like, well, that's not going to work. You've just, you know what I mean? It's like the yeah. sketch tells you something. That's exactly right. Okay. So I'm certainly a, I don't know who the relevant comic book hero is but i like the chaos like let's take the risk let's empower the people and see where we go i certainly want that of course a lot of our users use giraffe in a very tightly controlled way so they use that power and which i also think is totally valid right you know i'm not running a city and and i understand that developers with large you know if you've got a lot of capital at risk your risk profile is much lower and so you're trying to that's fine but i what we have noticed right and, and we've actually got a guy who's doing a PhD on this using Giraffe where he's testing this live design process with groups and then an old traditional like butter paper, like yellow trace and pens. And he hasn't published his PhD yet. I can't wait for it. He won't, he won't send it to me till it's published, but he says it's noticeable the difference. And what you actually get is convergence because you test like three options in, in two minutes. You stretch it, you add a level. He says, no, that, you, you explore the design space really quickly and it's not, it's the opposite of that thing where, where you know where some people in the room is like, I, I know that I'm uncomfortable with this, but I don't know why. So I'm just going to ask for another four options to be done just to hedge myself because they see it all. They go, actually, you know what? I, I'm actually comfortable with this. And so th- I think human beings in conversation have an ability to uh, achieve groupthink, right? Like good or bad, right? You can achieve a consensus. So we've actually seen it. And the study will come out and I'll, I'll send it to you and I'll, I'll sing it from the rooftops that it actually, it, it, re- it increases rigor, increases engagement, but it reduces time. And it's not that I can tell you've done, you're an architect, right? You've done options. You've had that thing where you've left a meeting with like, now I have to do 65 options. Like, how am I going <laughs> to do this? Right. It doesn't yeah. actually lead to that. It actually leads to the opposite, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. As you've been talking and I've been kind of clicking around the website, I, I'm trying to understand how as a developer and more specifically as a home builder, you know, how we would best utilize this, or is it really a tool that um, is better equipped for the architect and or the land planner to be using as a means to avoid those 65 options, right? Because from where I sit and, and, <laughs> 
backing up way to my college days, my whole life I thought I, or my whole childhood and, and teen years and leading up to college, I wanted to be an architect. And it was when I got to university and was actually in architecture school that I, I said, wait a minute, it's a developer that dictates what the architect is totally. doing. Like, unless you, unless you really make it, you know, nine times out of 10, it's the developer and the principal, the sponsor that's, that's, you know, giving direction to the architect on what to plan and here's the density to solve for and here's what yeah. you can and can't do and and then you know the architect sort of like you said earlier rob taking orders and that in large part was why i switched majors to business and ultimately became a developer so as to giraffe i guess i'm just curious about you know applicability that you've seen i maybe kind of the history of the company how long have you been in in business and um who do you actually see using the um, the software. Uh, yeah, the software. I mean, are you finding that it's primarily architects, or you know, how much, how many developers, builders, principals, sponsors, capital partners are kind of getting familiar with it? Um, and I'll just add, you know, one of the things that that I think is always tough is when you when you introduce technology, there's that learning curve, right? Totally. And and how do you get people up to speed on how to actually get the most out of the software? Yeah, those are like exact the questions on our mission right that's the exact the extent to which we're successful in getting people who are not architects to use the software is the extent to which the software becomes a co-design tool because you suddenly actually got true co-design it's not just an architect driving something and you've actually got multiple people in and that's constant pressure for us to make it easier more more like a game more simple without sacrificing power we're doing well on that I'm super proud of what our team has done. We've been in the market for about two years. We have got hundreds of developers in there. That So generally, it's developers that have a background. Either they studied architecture or they, they were an architect or they were a, a, an engineer. So they're not scared of drawing a polyline like they used CAD like 10 years ago. So they've got like a little a little step into it. You know, because there's another kind of developer which is just on the phone and the business cards and they're just they're, they're a pure commercial entity. Uh, those, you know, th- that sort of developer, we just go to their architect. But an, a developer that's got a little bit of history, just a tiny bit, is normally onboarded in Giraffe and they're sort of, they're dangerous in about 20 minutes. Do you know what I mean? They're starting to, they get it, they are, oh, I draw this and then I add and oh, that's my pro forma done. Oh, wow, that's quicker than phoning the architect. And now when I speak to them, I'm, I'm just showing them kind of what I want. So the conversation goes from a 40 minute briefing session where we're sort of saying, Oh, what if it was, yeah, just down to like a three minute, here it is, right? So we are in use by developers. Uh, another big customer base of ours is state agencies, right? So people deploying capital. So say this is like schools, boards or hospitals, um, bridges, you know, any kind of infrastructure. And, and they generally, they think like a developer, as in they deploy capital to build stuff. But they're not turning a pool of capital into a bigger pool of capital. They're generally, they've got an allocation of funding and they've got to demonstrate some kind of, you know, increased quality of life or climate resilience or transportation time or, or educational outcome, right? So they're looking for a return from that capital, but it's a more complicated way of measuring it. Does that make sense? So there we've also got a lot of users that are using giraffe to plan out precincts and schools and hospitals and, and infrastructure so that government side as well which is is cool so you mentioned a, a few examples of the uh, schools and, and other locations do you have uh, any projects that that you've kind of 
seen identified as co-design and maybe giraffe sort of was a a tool to do so yeah i'll talk to i'll talk to one in particular which was a a, was a railway corridor and this was when i was working as an architect at cox architecture which is a big firm here in australia and one of the things that um that cox did and and giraffe was involved in was so this is this huge corridor. It's a new train line. And so you can imagine it's cutting through multiple jurisdictions and it's, mm-hmm. and the land ownership is very complicated. And those different jurisdictions, so say your federal, your state, your city, they've each got different capital allocation programs. The private landowners are trying to consolidate lands across this. There's, there's needs in terms of infrastructure provision, water, all these kind of things. So it's more of an urban, it was a, a strategic plan, but the way that they, that we ended up doing it was we got everyone into a huge room. <laughs> so invited like hundreds of people across this corridor from every walk of life. Now this wasn't true co-design in the sense that these weren't community members. We couldn't go to the se- we couldn't go to the point where these are just people like well, in Australia, we call them punters. I guess you call them Joe citizens or, you know, just man on the <laughs> man on the street. Right. Yeah. There was still, they, they had, um, they had some. They were they were generally representing people. So you know, representatives from water, from transport, from the local governments, from the bar, you know, all of that stuff. And what we did is we drew, we we divided it up, and then in giraffe they sat around a table and they drew options, and it was incredible. <laughs> it was actually incredible, because what actually ended up happening is we thought that was the plan. So we were like, let's just get them to design this corridor, and then you'll get this local knowledge. And you'll short circuit a whole bunch of engagement because everyone will have been there and will have seen it. So you won't have to do 25 briefings and set up coffee carts and all this sort of stuff. They didn't manage even to get to the, to the design bit because what it turned out was that everyone had so much information in their heads that we couldn't have accessed otherwise. It basically, we just gathered information for like, mm. and, and we had done a huge amount of prep- preparatory work. And this is the key thing with co-design is that. If you're co-designing, the architect or the leader becomes a facilitator. And you know that a facilitator, like you guys are great facilitators, like a podcast. You know more, more about me, more than me where this conversation's going. You're listening to me, but you're already two steps ahead and anticipating and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the facilitator of a co-design workshop needs to be that sophisticated where they're drawing stuff out, but also steering the ship. It's not just like a, all right, guys, what should we do? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's got to be like, We've got to think about these issues. And if someone's getting too dominant, you've got to quiet them down or ask them to, you know, if someone's too, too fearful, bring them forward. So it's quite a, it's quite a complicated job, right? Yeah. So we had done this huge amount of preparatory work to do that job here. And we'd looked at the GIS layers and we'd researched and we'd put them on a giraffe and we'd mapped them out. And we thought we knew everything about this corridor, but oh, holy heck, we did not, right? There's like, oh, no, we've just signed a deal with these guys to turn that car park into a bus station. And, oh, it hasn't been released. But that, that, that we, And so we just mapped that stuff. So as they spoke, like we were furiously on giraffe, like just building this map, right? Mm. So giraffe, you think of it, it's, it's just a map of the world. It's a digital twin of the whole world. So we we're putting all this information, tracing this stuff, saying who it came from, what status it was. And by the end, you had this really thick, really, really thick, dense understanding of the of this corridor that we otherwise would not have achieved. But yeah. what it says to us is only then were we ready to do the code. Actually, now let's make some decisions, right? 
which, mm-hmm. you know, you guys have done, you architects, and you've done context analysis and site analysis. You know how hard it can be to find information. But I think just doing it through this kind of interview, it's almost like a startup style where you do user interviews. It's like it's, it's very conversational. It was jaw-dropping to me how much information in the world goes <laughs> around an individual's heads. And if you don't speak to them and get them in a place where they can share it in a structured way, it only comes out three years later, you know what I mean? And the, the project's six years, six months behind and, and you know, and someone's like, I, I could have told you that. Yeah. I don't know if you, have you guys heard of the all bugs are shallow? It's a software, it's a software thing. So it's all bugs are shallow to someone. So bug is a, a, you know, bugs are errors in the code and some of them are yeah. absolute nightmares to solve. You can't figure it out. But the, the saying is all bugs are shallow to someone. Like to, there's someone on earth who will look at this problem and get it in 10 seconds. Like they've seen this, pro- you know what I mean? And so yeah. if you can surf this, which is why open source is, like you, you put your code out and say, I've got this problem. Someone will see it and solve your problem. And yeah. I think co-design, there's definitely an element of that, that factor. Like you want to capture as many viewpoints as you can because the information in that person to, to you, the developer, or the person who's trying to push this thing through, it's magic. I think you're, you preemptively answered my question that I had next, but maybe... You have a different answer. What What is the vision or what do you think, what kind of world does the co-design open up? Okay. I, this is where I'll get philosophical here. Okay. <laughs> so, so I think one of the biggest challenges facing humankind right at the top, okay, is we're more and more living in an artificial world. Okay. So it's not, you go to those old how do I how do I sort of frame this? Get, go to like an old European city that was built by hand, say Santorini in Greece, even Paris, those Italian towns, which people love and they are so beautiful and organic and sophisticated, carbon carbon negative to the you know. How did those cities come? They weren't designed. They were inherently co-designed because people just did them together, right? And I've been renovating my house and I, like I needed to build a pergola. I built the pergola. It looks beautiful. I didn't do a single drawing. I just, you're just there. And as you work, you get feedback, you ask people. They, and so it just happens. So it's very natural for, for people to design together, right? Fast forward to say like sort of what, you know, us, right? Our modern industrial culture. The impact that an individual can have on something is like, are you going to um, remove gypsum board or particle OSB from the supply chain? No, right? And all the carpenters, they need to use it. So you will have to use particle board, right? If you're going to build something economically, like that's, that decision is made. You can't mess with it. And so there's this, there's all these decisions that have already been made. That, like technology, there's a famous like line, like technology is a series of decisions that have already been made. Like you've got your Mac. That's because the Mac's designed, right? You have to deal with it. You can go and try and build a whole new company, but it's too hard. So how do we as people who naturally know how to make decisions and create our environments together do that in in the face of these massive technical systems that we have built? You know, like your department of infrastructure or your DOT or your federal, these these bureaucracies and the standards and the supply chains and the contracts, like... It's really hard and it's sad because the output is generally a lower quality of built environment. As in, if you, if you walk around the average town built today, people are not going to just travel to it just because it's so beautiful in the way that they just travel to Santorini just to look at it because it's so stunning. Mm-hmm. And we could do Santorini effort. It's so cheap and easy. They built it out of, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
but but it's like how you know the approval it just doesn't so so i see that that problem of helping empowering people to engage with these extremely um complex forces technological forces in a way that the technological force doesn't just overwhelm them and they get the same you know, it's just cookie cutter. It's like, dude, we do five on ones or whatever you guys call them. I, I always use, try to use your US. We do five on ones. You get five on ones. That's, that's it. Yeah. Like, no, sh- like you can, it can either be like this or that, but it's a, fu- you're right. How do you actually empower them to, to make a difference, right? Or, or to, to at least have a decision. Okay. And so the paradox of us is we're using technology to, to help empower them almost against technology, but trying to do it. So where I wanted to go, where I'd love it to go, is that people with systems like giraffe, like humane technology, are able to be able to navigate the things that you normally pay an architect to navigate because they're so complicated more and more mm-hmm. naturally and more and more immediately. And so they will have the feeling that they can make decisions and build forms and, and neighborhoods and they understand the technology rather than the other, other way around where it feels like the neighborhood is just like, oh, someone's putting a freeway overpass there. I didn't know that. Like, I guess, I guess, right? They funded it. And, and so then there's this feeling that things just happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really ugly, I think that's a really ugly thing. I think that's really bad for people's humanity. I think it makes them feel depressed. You know what I mean? And disempowered. So, so that would, and the worst thing to me is that these systems and these, these cadence that we're in right now, where you just deploy capital in as, in as, as fast as possible. And that continues and, and sort of people become more and more alienated from their environment. I think, uh, that's sort of the, that's the bad. And then the, the fully empowered is the good. I think, I don't know. I'm an optimist, but. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciated the philosophical direction that you went there, Rob. <laughs> um, maybe along the same lines, who is code design for? From my perspective, co-design is for the people who are going to use the thing, right? And this is, this is why I think, this is why I think Santorini is so, so beautiful because the people who are going to be in Santorini built Santorini. Like they wanted a house, you build the house. And I'm building my house now. I wanted, I, I love green. So I just paint, like you can see my wall's green, right? I didn't, I didn't see, I just painted it green. And you may hate green, but this is, you know, it's for me. So it means that the feedback loop is, is perfect, right? Whereas currently design is generally, the people doing it and the people who use it, you can do market research. You can try and figure out what people want, but it is, it's decoupled, right? It's deep because of the, your, your freeway engineers who are building the freeways. It's so technical and so complicated what they're doing and they're doing soil samples and traffic studies and machine learning. And they can't, you know, so, so these guys that are just living in the neighborhood, one day they'll get a, an announcement saying, Hey, Make a, it, we're putting a freeway in. Like now's your chance to complain. You have you have thirty eight hours or whatever. And then they can be like, I hate it or whatever, right? But it's it's the people that are going to live next to it don't really have a vehicle into the into the design process. So it's separated. So I think what I would say that my definition of co design is is the users and the designers become the same because then that's that's a great thing. Then. They can't complain about what they get because they've made it, but it, it means that they're, incent- they're incentivized to make it beautiful. I'd love to know how the developer think responds to that. <laughs> yeah, well, because I, I'm, what I'm struggling, what I'm struggling to understand. So, in, in concept, I, I totally get it, um, but I'm, I'm struggling to understand how the capital that may be funding the project. How do you get the input of 
all of the users or some of the users, if they aren't monetarily tied to the project in the same way that the capital that's providing to the project is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that has to come down to kind of how our previous conversation was, Michelle, where there almost has to be this policy requirement that there has to be funding from community members to some level, whatever that number may be. And that gives them that stake. I really like so that crowdfunding. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that working in the United States? People are so selfish. Are you kidding? Yeah. Like, I reckon this yeah. is a true. So it's it's, it's a pessimistic. I feel like this works in. I, I think Rob, you said something about Scandinavia. I think you said something about Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I get it. You know, I studied abroad in Denmark, and shoot, the the Danes are they'd be all over this. They'd be like, heck yeah, they, you, know, you want to? Yeah. We need to contribute ten percent of our income. Sure, like you know, and that's why you go to places like Copenhagen and it's stunning and and operates well and it's you know the, there's all these you go to their public transit and it works on a dime and it's on time <laughs> and it's clean and you know but but not in the I don't USA. know I I guess I just trying to yeah and it, I don't know I'm just trying to understand the applicability uh, I, I um I I hear you right so that the, the, the do you know the Baugruppen model are you guys across that it's a European model where basically the equity partners of a development are the buyers and it and it's a way of basically setting up a temporary developer where you pre-sell the development and but th- then they also equity fund it so you're kind of short-circuiting that thing that's big in europe big in europe don't know if it'll work in in the u.s i think crowdfunding in the u.s is quite interesting in terms of like kickstarter and there's a bunch of models which short circuit that that capital consumer circle so i think there are models i'm certainly an optimist on human nature i think people are actually very generous and and i think often what 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 looks like selfishness is fear because either they don't understand the system or they feel a bit abused by the system, which is sort of a, sure. a thread of what I've been saying. Yeah, I agree. But but on the on the other side, I am a capitalist in the sense that it takes initiative and energy to make anything happen, right? And and so if you say, oh, we'll just let the community like crowdfund themselves, that's not going to happen. Like you need someone who's driving. And generally, they're driving for a financial incentive, not always. But I think there is a tension between... So for me, co-design, like I kind of alluded to, there's always a facilitator. There's always an energy pushing it along, trying to get from A to B. And they're trying to bring in as many people as possible and viewpoints, viewpoints rather. But there is that, there is that, that energy. And, I, and, 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 and Michelle, I can hear you say you kind of dropped out of architecture into development because you like the end at the push and you want to be the the originator and the, the and the momentum yeah so co-design I, I i i like that i like people that have energy and they have a vision and they want to make it happen so i don't want to get rid of that i, I don't want to go full uh like communism collective or whatever but <laughs> <laughs> so question about giraffe um i was just looking and, and not to get too far off topic but i it, i think it ties into a lot of what we're talking about with with just kind of the philosophical approach of co-design and and having that user be involved. So I was just looking at the pricing for Giraffe. Um, and I, Rob, I don't know who your competitors are, if you have competitors, um, but it, when you, you know, is this project or is this company Giraffe and kind of the impetus behind it, was it, was it really born from 
more of the philosophical ideas that you've talked about where where this needs to be the future, this co-design, this users being involved in in building and creating the environment and the money component to giraffe is a so what? Or is is giraffe like here because you see that this is this platform is gonna financially send you into, you know, some I'm going to be at the new the, the new Zuckerberg. That's right. No, yeah, yeah. Look, I, th- th- that's a gr- that's a great question. That's a pointed personal question. I'll yeah, answer. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> no, no, that, no, that's I, why I, I'm on this. That's why I'm a co-host here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to ask it. Um, the the key. So my my dad was a professor. I, I sort of giraffe. A lot of it came out of research I was teaching at university, and and I chose architecture. Right. Which, as you know, is not the the best paid. It's certainly I don't know. Maybe architects make make bank in in the states, not here. So. No, they don't. No. So I've never. <laughs> so I've never been financially driven. That being said, I I'm not commercially. You know, we are commercially astute. For me, and I represent. I've got a company here, and I, and I want to. I've got to provide for my family. So it's kind of like what I'm saying about co-design. We need to make money. And we will make money. And, and the amount of value that we're unlocking with Giraffe is crazy. Like we are taking for, for our clients, like a process that would take them 200 hours with their architect to get from sort of A to a master plan, like where they can sign off on a pursuit. That's coming down to less than 40 hours of an internal time. So it's like an 80% reduction in their consulting spend and time. We're automating their performance. So like we're just creating exorbitant value for our clients and we're, we're, we're aware of that and we're charging them for that because and we're making money and and I hope that we make good money and the reason I hope that we make good money is because I am not a theoretician so I could have gone and you know if I'd followed you know my father's footsteps and like sort of the way I was raised I would be in acad- academia and I'd be researching co-design and I'd be and I'd love supporting that but I want to see a change I want to see a change in the way that capital is deployed in cities and I want it to be more holistic and I want it to be more, more sustainable, creating better health. I want it to be beautiful. Like, because the planet is now almost fully urbanized and it's just, you know, the cities are the thing that we're building that is either going to set us free as a, as a species or like destroy the planet. We'll just extract all the resources, turn it into this big ugly parking lot and it'll just, you know, blow up. And I don't want to see that happen. So I am highly motivated by a more sophisticated capital allocation process. Or another way of saying it, a more, a more holistic, democratic or co-designed design process, which connects the needs of people with, you know, with that capital allocation. And so I'm super interested in crowdfunding and, and equity models and the way that the money drives the incentives that drives the systems. I'm also interested in the way that design can happen in real time and bring in different viewpoints. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very pragmatist. Like I want to see, you know, if giraffe was, if, if giraffe's good, and I think it is good, I want to see it used in every single capital allocation decision. If it's going to make that capital decision better, right? Then we'll make a living. Like I'm, 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 you know, everyone on this call, we're all speaking like through undersea cables. Like we're all, we're all fine. We've got food. We're not, you know, we'll be fine. We will make money. I, I don't think you'll see me next to Elon Musk and, um, and the guys, but, <laughs> but, but, what I, if I would die happy if giraffe was used, you know, it's more of an ego thing, I guess, if you look at it that way than a, than a money thing. Is giraffe pulling from Google data, like Google Street Maps oh, data? Or how do you? so cool, right? So we pull from any public data set. 
So like okay. if there's a, if there's a county that has an Esri, like an ArcGIS server, or if you've got regrid data, or if you've got any data source that you have, we just plug into and we just pull. So we've got like hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of layers. So like anything. And we're in the US, we're in Israel, we're in Japan, we're in Australia. And we're basically, my, my vision, ultimate co-design is uh, giraffe is a digital twin of the world where you can see everyone's designs, right? In real time. So I would like fly to, where are you guys? What city are you in? We're in, uh, Irvine, California. Irvine, California. So you would fly to Irvine and you would see this 3D model of what people, what people are doing, what's, what capital's been hit, what, what people would love to see happening, what the students are, you know, and you would be able to like navigate through this. I guess it's a freaking metaverse now. I should start calling it, (laughs) but navigate through this, this, this model that's powered by real data, real analytics, real systems. And then be able to say, look, this, I like this or I don't like this. And so one of our product lines we call places, which is where you, you do your 3D modeling and your feasibility and your engineering and you get your business case, like you you underwrite the deal, you get your performer singing, but then you push that 3D model to the public and say, what do you guys like? Look at it. Tell us in a way that trusts them rather than the pretty render where they get like a tiny little video and they have to trust that you haven't you know, Photoshop the tree in front of the building and the, you know what I mean? So they can spin around, they can change the sun, see if it shadows them, they can do all of this stuff. So I, I think that kind of, if we could make it so inclusive so that people could understand what's happening in their cities, right? From the, the various tiers, like the Black Rocks and the, the mega trillion dollars of capital and then the federal agencies and the state agencies and the local community groups and the activists and the developers and they could see everyone's picture, everyone's wants, yeah. that would be that would be awesome. And we haven't figured out how to do that, but that's what we're that's what we're trying to get to. Yeah. So to that to that point, um Michelle brought up the pricing but didn't mention the actual price. One, can you mention the price? And then two, do you foresee at at some point you guys being able to create some sort of public version that anybody can jump on there with whether it's an, a limited number of hours or a, a smaller threshold pricing threshold or something like that so the, so the way we priced is three three thousand per user per year um, okay. which is is much cheaper than our competitors but you get a free project for life as you know and you get three viewers. So, so in Giraffe, you create a project, you can invite people in. So you can, it's very similar to stuff like Figma where there's like this, you get this free stuff and maybe we'll up that to a couple free projects or something. We're, we're generally pretty nice if you ask, a, you know, especially if you are, my, my revenue guy hates me because I always say yes to whatever anyone says. But, you know, you can always, so that's how our pricing. So we're, we're Is that 3,000 Australian? No, US, US dollars. Oh, US, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we're in the, we're in, we're in the US and, and we sell in, yeah, so uh, we sell in US dollars. It's more of, it's more well known than the Australian dollar around the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, now, so that's, that's the pricing answer. We are in the next, I think, couple of months, you'll start seeing some really cool giraffe assets in various media outlets in, in America. Mm-hmm. And you'll start to be looking at this kind of, these kind of models of what's coming and the kind of information that's going to inform and empower the people, right? And and now the most interested people, which will be developers and kind of activists and, and NIMBYs and YIMBYs and, and sort of the people that are activated about the city will obviously get in there first. And then people that are like, 
I don't, you know, I don't care about this. Well, ho- yeah. you know, but hopefully we'll be informed. So we'll sort of diffuse the knowledge through. But it's something we're going to iterate on. It's something we, you should, you should see more of soon. Yeah. So, cause I love this idea of like, you know, just the random person at home that has heard about a development nearby and they start to noodle on what they think should be there and then push it out and say, look, how about this? And people can, whoever's driving the bus on this can say, you know what, that part of it makes sense. Let's put that in. That that's, that's, you've got it. That's exactly. And imagine someone's like, you know what, I'm going to do this. And if you want to tip into my crowdfund equity and we actually buy this stuff, buy this thing and do the plan. Yeah. You know what I say? So once you get that, I think it's kind of a, it's just, I call it data liquidity. It's just making it easy to understand something that's already there. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to author. It's easy to see people understand 3D models in a way they don't understand plans, sections, schedules. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a way of just, short-circuiting a, a really slow conversation. But that yeah. speed, you know, Stalin said quantity has a quality of its own, you know, the, quanti- the quantity quality, speed has a quality of its own. If, if, if things happen in real time, you unlock something that you can't unlock if they don't, which is, it's, it's interesting. It's not just that the same thing happens quicker, something different happens, which is, yeah. is cool. So I, I promise I'm not a naysayer. Um, a lot of the questions I feel like are coming from this angle of like, I don't get it. But um, what I think about is is somewhat how, how you're describing um, the code design and everyone sort of has input. Uh, in some ways, it feels a bit utopian. And what I what I have a hard time reconciling um, is in California, and, and I imagine this exists in other parts of the world, and maybe in Australia as well. Is we have this thing called NIMBY, you know, not yeah, in my NIMBYs. backyard. Yeah. Oh, we got them. And yeah. um, and in some ways, I think opening up a project to in such an intimate way as as co design obviously would actually sets the project up for failure because you you get too many inputs and so I'm I'm trying to reconcile you know how do you successfully co-design in a nimbian environment mm. you know where it doesn't matter if they have input they just they're going to say no to the project totally and and look and our users and I fully endorse and respect them utilize giraffe in very controlled ways you know I'm not saying hey if you sign up to giraffe, you've got to, you've got to put on your tie dye and come with me and show everyone <laughs> what you're doing. Right? Giraffe is an analytic tool to help you deploy capital better. And it just kicks ass at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am seeing, and I'm just, it is utopian here. I am seeing a world not only where there is risks taken by proponents of projects to be more open and engaging because remember, this is a risk, right? Like there's a famous case here in Australia where the developer spent I don't know, 30 million, 40 million bucks on a scheme hit the community and the community just went ballistic and they yeah, have, they backed down. It. They backed mm-hmm. down. And so it's like, why don't you guys manage that risk? Right. Because what giraffe allows you to do is because you've got all the numbers there, you can start painting benefits. You can say, look, if you give me this extra two stories of height, I get an extra $4 million and I will build you a swimming pool and I can, right. I can connect this. So I can connect urban form to benefit. And, and then that opens up a conversation to say, what is important to you guys? Is what's important the height or is it the economic impact or is it the traffic? And so by having the thing concretely in front of you, the discussion becomes super particular. It's not like a, ah, I just don't like the vibe. 
It's like, yeah. what don't you like? Tell me, point at it, and I'll move it. If you don't like the height there, I'll drop the height and I'll put it there. Is that, you know? And so there is a, and again, this is more, more like we, we, this is speculative. We've, we've got this PhD happening. I've seen it in controlled environments. This hasn't happened in the great public arena, but definitely the quality of conversation. If you have evidence to hand and real time feedback, it increases and, and you find places to compromise on, which if you don't have this, it's hard to because you don't know what each other are talking about. You're talking past each other. You're feeling unheard. You get angry. You get defensive. And then you, so this is designed to short circuit it. And I, and I, and so sorry, the other, the final thing is because giraffes are easy to use, anyone can just model it up. So if you, if the developer's saying, Hey, like you can build a proformer in giraffe in literally like five minutes. And, and so you can just model the building up and say, okay, you're building it for, tell me how many square dollars per square foot hard cost and soft cost. And I'll get, I'll tell you what the financials of this thing is. I don't need to see it. I can just work it out. So there's this kind of, it's like an analytical and verification tool as well. So what it does is it, it introduces a new level of transparency and speed into the, into the market, into the ecosystem, which I think is positive. I think it leads to better decisions. And I think developers will appreciate, will appreciate, it'll be of net benefit to developers, but it will be a change. It's a, it's a, like a slight change in, in it. You can't be fully secretive. Without you, not saying you have to be like you know, there at all. Yeah, you're spot on about kind of using it as almost a negotiation tool yeah. um, to get to the design that that ultimately is going to be economically feasible, um, but also acceptable to uh, the community and the neighborhood. And you're shaking out the particular issues. It's like, I know, yeah. what is it? The sun you don't like? Is it the view? What is it? Yeah, yeah. Out of curiosity, so you you market to uh, consultants, government, property developers, enterprise. Who is your number one user at this point? And, and how many? I, I think I missed it. How long have, have you been in business for now? We've been so like we experimented since twenty seventeen. While whilst I was still an architect, and and my architecture firm actually sort of seeded the business, which was awesome. Oh, um, that's awesome. And and then we we jumped out and. Um, uh, 2020, so two years basically okay. uh, going. Um, our biggest user is basically, I kind of say the sweet spot for giraffe is if you're deploying, it's got to be 100 million plus for it to really sing. It makes total sense if you're just doing, like I, I got a, an approval to subdivide the, the my, my block. I used giraffe was the quickest and easiest. But because of these enterprise things, like you can create templates and standards and share layer packs amongst teams so if you've got like, if you've got a lot of capital to deploy rigorously in, in a way that, you know, you're systemically improving your decision maker, man, the, the benefit just multiplies. So we, we go for those tier ones in government and private sector that are deploying, you know, 100 million to 10 billion, you know, up, up. The more, the more, the more bees, the better, the, the more, the more the impact basically. Rob, as we wind down, um, for anyone that's considering this co-design approach, what are some things that you would recommend um, they implement or, or consider in, in approaching this kind of concept? Okay, so I would recommend either Giraffe or something like Giraffe. So a, a tool which is, is real feedback. So that can be someone who's like a, who can sketch really well, right? Like, you know, a great drawer. Um, I've seen people do it. You People do it with blocks and cardboards that people can shove around. So there's this real-time feedback. The reason I say something like giraffe is because you, if you can get the numbers in real time as well as the concepts, magic, right? And then I would say you, you need people 
that facilitator, so someone who is trained not only in design and understands the issues and the technical, but is also competent to lead a conversation and facilitate the lead from the back, you know, like be, recede and let other voices come through, but still orchestrate something that's, that's, that's it. And then the, the, the last thing I would say is just take a bit of risk, you know, cause I, I get it scary as in like, you know, and you don't have to take big risks. Just do it with closed, closed user groups. Like, you know what I mean? You don't have to go to the public first up, but you know, just trust, I guess, jump into the unknown and, and give it a go. And it's shocking. It's shockingly effective. If you've got your ears open, the amount of information that you'll receive in such a short amount of time, it's like, it's like doing weeks of research. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rob. For those that want to follow along with you, uh, if you have personal channels that you want to promote or uh, just Giraffe, what's the best way they can follow along? Yeah, so we're on Twitter. Uh, the best the best place to go to our, our, um, our website, and, and which is giraffe.build, and, and then follow the links. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Rob. Uh, thank you again, Michelle, for joining me as well. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you again to our sponsor, CTO Landscape Architecture. To learn more about how they can help you with your latest project, visit ctola.com. That's S-I-T-I-O-L-A.com. Or you can call or text at 657 217 6169. Thank you to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit ncarb.org slash AOP and contribute to the analysis of practice survey today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.